I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, as was already mentioned uh, in the service, um, my plan would be to take the next two weeks and to draw our focus uh, to some important concepts, some foundational commitments that we have regarding the Word of God at uh, Colonial Baptist Church. I want to do this in preparation for the conference that's coming up, uh, where we will be taught better how to be students of Scripture. Uh, But as I uh, was thinking uh, about what to do with these two weeks, uh, I thought of two different texts of Scripture uh, that I would like to draw your attention to in the Sunday mornings, because I believe they teach us very valuable lessons uh, about the Word. And so, uh, this week... Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, where we will see that uh, text people, uh, people of the word, uh, must believe in the power of the word uh, to change lives. Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13. So it's one foundational commitment for us. Text people must believe in the power of God's word. And then next Sunday morning, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, the text near the end of that chapter that speaks about not, uh, not just being hearers of the word, but being doers also, where we will be reminded that text people must obey the word they understand, must obey the word they understand. And so it's with great privilege and delight, this is one of my favorite topics Uh, to proclaim from the pulpit the power of the Word of God. This morning we look at Hebrews chapter 4 and the ability of the Word. As we uh, prepare ourselves to look at verses 11 through 13, we need to know that these three verses bring all of chapters 2 through 4 to a close with a very strong warning. The structure of the book of Hebrews is arranged around five doctrinal sections followed by five words of warning. This is technically the second strong warning in the book and these three verses we look at contain one command the command comes at the beginning of verse 11 let us therefore strive to enter that rest and there's other information related to the word of god that we'll see uh, in this passage actually in these chapters the author of hebrews has been commenting on the faithless wilderness generation of the Israelite people, especially in chapter 3, the faithless first generation of Israelites in the wilderness. And he says that they failed to enter the rest that he describes as the promised land. Remember your Old Testament history. They failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief, because they lacked faith. But what we learn in chapter 4 is that these chapters are not just here to narrate a history of those people But it's a call to his readers, the readers of the author of of Hebrews' book, to respond to the failures of the faithless wilderness generation in two ways. say, well, where do you see those in the text? They're very easy to see in your Bible. Hebrews 4, verse 1, look there in your Bible, says, therefore, then there's a phrase. You looking in your Bible? We're text people, right? Look down. Verse 1, Hebrews 4, 1, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Okay, so if you're highlighting your Bible or making notes, it's therefore, let us fear. There's a command. Okay, so based off of what I said about the wilderness generation, 
Therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should uh, seem to have failed to reach it. Then you look down in your Bible at verse 11. Look down at verse 11, and it's the exact same phrase in the original as far as setting it up. Therefore, let us strive. Okay, so verse 1, the author says, we, we should fear, and then, verse 11, we must strive to enter that rest. Okay, so he gives these two responses that he requires. They should feel failure to enter God's rest because, I think in verses 1 through 10, eternity is at stake. I think he's basically saying, you should not mess around here. And what he, what he ends up doing is he draws a parallel to the rest of the promised land. He eventually relates the rest of the promised land to the rest of heaven. The rest that people will experience after that finished line, death or the return of the Lord, when we come to heaven. And so we should be afraid to miss out on that. So we should fear failure. It's quite important. In verse 11, the author challenges us to respond in another way. He says, we should strive to enter into God's rest. The word strive means make every effort or give deliberate, sustained effort to this. The second challenge implores God's people to do everything that they can to enter God's rest and respond to God's goodness and grace. But actually, most of the passage that we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 and 13 give an explanation. The author explains why. Why should we invest so much effort in pleasing God and entering this future rest that he describes? Okay, now um, let's imagine that I took the whole church here today and said, you know, instead of coming here, I said, okay, we're going to do a field trip this morning. Uh, I take you to a track somewhere in Virginia Beach, and I say, I want everyone to run 10 laps. How would you respond to that? Well, one of the responses might be, why? I mean, why do you want me to try that, let alone accomplish it? You know, 10 laps. Why? What's your reasoning What's your rationale? And you'd be looking for some sort of explanation about why you had to do this. And so in verse 12 and 13, the author of Hebrews is giving us why. Why strive to enter the rest? Why give diligent effort? And he gives two reasons. Okay, so this is my outline this morning. Two reasons. Reason number one why we must give all diligence to enter God's rest is because God's word discerns your internal motives and thoughts, verse 12. Okay, so why should I give that much effort being approved by God and entering? Because God's word discerns your internal motives and thoughts. Look with me at verse 12. It says, for... The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we look, as we look closely at verse 12 this morning, we can learn many things about the word of God. I think the first thing we need to wrestle with was 
What does the author of Hebrews mean? What is he describing when he says the word of God? It's interesting to me that the author of Hebrews only uses the phrase the word of God in this form in one other place in Hebrews, Hebrews 13 and verse 7. In that passage, the author is talking about the leaders of the early church that, uh, that the author is addressing here. That they're leaders of, of their assembly who speak, they're speaking the word of God to them. Okay, so it seems to be that these are new covenant leaders over the, 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 the leaders of the, the people, the Hebrews here, who worked with an existing body of material, the written revelation of God. Okay, and so uh, one of the things we're addressing here at the beginning is what is the word of God? I say Hebrews 13, 7, there were leaders working with this material. It's words that came from God. We live in a world that desperately wants to know if there is a God and if he loves them. As we talk about whether or not God loves us, I suppose the first and most fundamental way that God demonstrated his love to us was that he brought us into being. He created us. Okay, and that's one of the reasons why the doctrine of creation is so important. God loves us, so he created us. And following right after that, maybe second, temporally, right after that, God demonstrated his love to us in that he spoke to us. He spoke to us. He revealed himself to us as humanity. This reveals his great love for us. He didn't have to speak to us. He didn't have to give us the capacity to understand him, but he used words and he used creation to reveal himself to us as human beings. This is a testimony of God's love for us. And what we learn throughout the Old and New Testament is that God continued to reveal himself to us, to human beings. And so as Hebrews 1 says, uh, God in times past spoke through the prophets to reveal himself and his expectations to humanity. And then later on, Hebrews 2. These last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Son, he's revealed his word to us through his son. And now we can find his words revealed to us in this book, in scripture. So having said that, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, I think the primary emphasis is actually on the way God's words warn us and can diagnose our sin. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying here at the beginning is we must strive to enter God's rest because if, uh, if we don't remain faithful to God, the word of God will distinguish it. It will reveal it. And so with that understanding, I want to look back at verse 12 again. Look at verse 12. For the word of God, and he describes it here, what the word of God is. It is living and active. The word living, actually, if you're reading in the original, would be the very first word that you would come across in the original. It would be, you could translate it something like this. Living is God's word. Okay, that's a very unusual way to, to talk about written or spoken communication or a book. No book is living Words don't really live. The point here is that the, the word of God is different. It is powerful. And the key emphasis is it's not dead. Although the word of God was written thousands of years ago in scripture, it's not dead. It is alive. 
And then he continues, it is also active. The author describes God's word as active. This means that God's word is energetic. It is capable to accomplish things. One preacher, R. Kent Hughes, said it this way. He said, God's word vibrates with active effectual power as it rushes to fulfill the purposes for which it was spoken. Active effectual power. I think uh, Thomas Wope read about that in Isaiah 55 this morning, didn't he? I just love that text. Don't you love that text? As rain and snow come down from heaven to water the earth and produce seed and bread, so God's word comes down from heaven and accomplishes its purposes. It always produces what God intends with it. Okay, but I'll, I'll try not to get too excited quite yet. That's what God's word is, living and active. It's capable. But then he continues to describe God's word by what it does. What it is, living and active, what it does. It discerns our true inner conditions and motivations. What it does is pictured a few ways in verse 12. It begins by saying that it is sharper than a dagger. Often translated here, two-edged sword. And I think that what our minds think of as sword is a little bit different than what the original author may have intended. We think of like a large sword, but he's talking about a little dagger, okay, that's sharp. He might actually be talking about a, a surgeon's knife. A surgeon's knife, sharp on both sides, God's word. So that, you keep reading in the text, so that it cuts to the division of soul and spirit. Okay, the word cut would be, it pierces or penetrates down to the inner parts of mankind. And when he says soul and spirit, I think he's talking about our immaterial parts. Things, not, not our body, but the other things, the immaterial parts, the spiritual parts. And then he continues, this word from God, as it comes down from him, it cuts down to the place where it can distinguish between our joints and marrow, or marrow, he says here. These represent the physical parts of the human being. I found interesting as I was studying it, I never saw this before I thought about this, that joints and marrow have to deal with the bone. Okay, and so if he's talking about our physical bodies, not talking about our flesh, sure, the word of God can go there. He's not talking about muscle, he's talking about bone. Joints, marrow, can pierce to that sort of level. So together, these descriptions, these two different parts of mankind, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, summarize all of human existence, both the material and the immaterial. I liked how Peter O'Brien said it uh, this week. He said, the word of God is able to penetrate the deepest recesses of the human being and personality. But the author's not even done yet talking about the word of God and how it's living. Because he, he next says that it is able to discern or distinguish between our thoughts 
and our intentions, like our thoughts themselves and our complete way of thinking, our intents, the word of God goes down into our heart and it confronts our values, imaginations, and intentions. Men and women, this is amazing, amazing truth about the word of God. You might ask, well, why do we get so much about the word here? I think one of the reasons that I found uh, would, would believe is because God's word diagnoses our heart. And the heart was what was the problem with the first generation in Israel who failed to get into the rest. I just want to show you that just for a second. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Go back to Hebrews 3 and verse 8. Hebrews 3 and verse 8. Remember, he talked about this faithless wilderness generation of Israelite people who didn't get in. Well, what was their problem? Look at verse 8. He's challenging his readers. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart which leads you to fall away from the living God. What the author of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews 4.12, he's saying, you know what, I'm concerned that you would have this sort of evil heart and there is an instrument that God uses that properly dissects the heart. It distinguishes. So you better strive to enter it. No one's getting in on false premises. I get the image here in my own mind of a medical examination, which is very intrusive. This is the ability of the word. You ever had a medical exam that was intrusive? I, you know, I haven't had a lot. I, several years ago, I was having significant issues with my eyes. I have a, an eye disease. I, we didn't know at the time, but an eye disease called keratoconus. It's, I guess it's astigmatism at the center of your eye. But at the time, for a long time, we couldn't figure it out. They couldn't get my vision any better than like 2,200 or so. So I didn't know what was going on. I thought, you know, am I going blind? You know. And I remember the medical exams, even the initial doctors. They couldn't figure it out. Okay. And so maybe you've been at the, dent- or at the eye doctor before, and they, they dilate your eyes. It starts with that, right? That's terrible. They dilated my eyes, and then they sit you in front. So once they got your eyes, huge, like windows to your soul, right? Feel like they're looking at the back of your head. They do this to your eyes, and then they they decide to get very bright, piercing lights. Right? Don't look directly. Yeah, yeah, right. I can't see anything at this point. And the doctor's right on you. You ever been there before? Just right in my, I can, I can feel him breathing. And he's probing, he's looking, he's digging. He's looking deep, deep into the eye. Men and women, the word burrows down into our hearts to diagnose where we are. Thus, the word of God, both the Old and New Testaments, It it is not a dead book. It is living and active in our present congregation. It is piercing 
and discerning. It discerns every part of us, our physical parts, our spiritual parts, our cognitive and emotional parts. And no person hides from the close, internal, penetrating scrutiny of God and His Word. So in a point of application here, you might wonder why we focus so much on the text of Scripture, Colonial Baptist Church. It's because we know of its ability. Its ability. We do not find good stories that we can add a verse to. Good stories about someone's life that we can add a verse to. We're not trying to go find celebrity people to come in here and to give us a word. We have an authoritative person who has given us a word. It's God. That's who we want to hear from. So that's why we go through it like this. Okay. So reason number one why you should strive to enter God's rest is because God's word discerns your heart. Reason number two is verse 13. Verse 13, secondly, we should do so because God's eyes see our every action. Verse 13 says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give a word, could be translated. The final word of accountability is given to the God who sees. So look at verses 12 and 13. I see the author of Hebrews moving from the word of God to the eyes of God. From the word of God to the sight of God. Not only does the word of God diagnose our internal condition, the surveillance of God analyzes our every action. Somehow, I think verses 12 and 13 work together. It may be that verse 13 is an additional ground or reason, as I've, I've kind of outlined it here for the exhortation to strive to enter God's rest. Or it could also be that this verse goes a little deeper and talks about God and his eyes and how that confirms what we know to be true about his word. So it could be something like this. God's word is living and effective. It pierces and distinguishes because... One of the reasons is because his eyes see everything. So in verses 13, the author describes this first to us as God. Uh, he, he, the author says, all creatures are naked and exposed before God. This phrase naked and exposed uh, is a figure of speech that was used in two different types of settings in the first century. It was, some settings was used of a wrestler. He would take his opponent by the throat. The word exposed actually comes from the root for the word throat. So this phrase naked and exposed was used of a wrestler who would take his opponent by the throat. The two men were face to face. Naked and exposed. Or some ways it was used in criminal trials, this phrase naked and exposed. In some extreme cases, a sharp dagger would be bound to the neck of the accused victim right underneath his chin so that he had to look his accuser right in the face. If this is the imagery, then human beings cannot turn their faces away from God. 
think the point of it is, it's just clear, even in our English translation, naked and exposed. God clearly scrutinizes all human beings. Scrutiny. One preacher gave an illustration I thought was good. He told of the experience of some boys who were stealing apples from an orchard. Since as they were in the act of stealing, uh, it happened, just so happened, right, that the uh, great American astronomer Samuel Mitchell was observing the sun through his telescope as it descended. As it continued to descend, just as the sun sat, there came into his view the crest of an orchard-covered hill seven miles distant away where Dr. Mitchell watched the two boys. One picking apples and the other standing guard making sure that no one saw what was going on. So, you know, that's just, just like the vision of God. Like we can, we, we can try to fool ourselves and trick ourselves into saying he doesn't think, but all things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of God. His vision is penetrating. Now, by my verse, verse 13 in my Bible, I have written a reference to a psalm. And so I'm going to invite you to turn back there as we close. Psalm 139. To think of the close scrutiny of God, how well he knows us. I love this psalm and I always think of this psalm. Psalm 139. Go back to the psalm. This is a psalm of David where he considers just how well God knows him. And just how well God sees him. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word was on my tongue before, behold, O Lord, you knew it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my inward, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you, for when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake 
and I'm still with you. Let's go down to verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So go back to this psalm and I think of David's understanding of God's knowledge of him. God knows us. He knew me in my prenatal days. He knows all things about me. He discerns my innermost thoughts and motives. He sees all my activities. Yet I think sometimes we act as if God does not know and God does not see. We act a little bit like one of my children several years ago now. He was four. And he loved to play hide and go seek. And the way he would do this, he would go hide and he would cover his eyes with the rest of his body exposed. It was so cute, right? He thought he was hidden. You'd walk by, you'd make a game of it. Oh, I don't know where so-and-so is. (laughs) The whole time, as clear as day, as clear as day. I think sometimes we approach God this way. Yet God, according to the text, he knows us, he sees us. We cannot hide from him. So God sees us and he sends out his word to properly distinguish us. Men and women, we must believe in the text's ability to convict and challenge God's people to serve him. And it it is his word that will point us as fallen, sinful human beings, lay us bare, and will point us to the need of something else. We need something else. I invite you to go right back to Hebrews 4. I just want to read you where the author of Hebrews goes after this strong warning. Strong warning, God's words. Where does he go right after this? I just want to read you parts of the next next verse. Verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we might receive mercy. Find grace to help in time of need. So he takes them right to the foot of a faithful high priest who has tempted himself in every way like we are, yet without sin, who offers grace and mercy to us in our time of need. So as the word of God lays us bare, we're thankful for his strong warnings. We're also thankful for its reflection on the one, the one who came and died and rose again so that we might be accepted and so that we might find grace and help. Perhaps you're here today and you've been here for several weeks or months and you've heard the word of God 
and it has been like a scalpel. It's cut and pierced, and as it's come from God, it has distinguished the true condition of your heart. Won't you turn to the faithful high priest who died on a cross for your sins? Won't you allow his sacrifice to cover all of your sin so that you could then go with confidence before the Lord and, and ask for help? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, I do believe in the text ability to convict, to dissect, to determine the true nature of our heart. We're so thankful for it. We know that it is effective. We know one of the reasons is because your eyes see, see it all. They know all about us. There's no place that we can go to hide. And so, Father, as we rejoice in the text ability, perhaps there are some in the room today who've been again convicted or challenged regarding a sin. Thank you for using your word like a scalpel to reveal that. But Father, perhaps there's some in the room who need to be awoken to the fact that they have an evil, unbelieving heart. I pray that your spirit would take the scalpel of the word to distinguish that and to reveal that to them. And I pray that those people who have never believed on Jesus for the covering of their sin, who've never repented of their sin and turned to Christ, would turn to the faithful high priest who died on a cross for them and who rose again so that they might be forgiven. We pray that you do that even this morning through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.